Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Without further ado, let's turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 12. This morning, I'm going to do my best to get through uh, verses 9 through the end of the chapter 21. Uh, It is highly unlikely because I'm me, and you all know that. But uh, last week, we got to verse 8. I was supposed to get to verse 13 last week, and that didn't happen. So um, I want you to just kind of uh, walk this road with me, because there's some, there's some amazing truths that we find in Romans chapter 12. Here's the stage that I want to set before we jump into verse 9 and before we start picking this apart uh, verse by verse. And that is this, that, that the whole of the book of Romans, and maybe more in particular, Romans 9 through 11, is communicating uh, the idea of unity. But unity comes in many forms. We are to be united as brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? We're to be united, we're to be together. That does not mean, it's really important to hear this, it does not mean we agree on everything. It, and why is, it, why is it that we don't agree on everything? Not because we won't someday agree on everything. We will someday fully understand or fully know. But the reason why it's okay not to agree on everything is because we're finite beings trying to discover or understand an infinite God. And we're finite beings with finite ways, and we're trying to understand an infinite God with ways that uh, Jeremiah tells us are high above our ways. Do you know this? Uh, So many of us say things like, uh, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God a thing or two, and and I, I don't necessarily like that. (laughs) attitude or approach. I don't necessarily think God likes that attitude or that approach. Um, What would be better is for us to, in humility, realize there are things that God does that are perfectly good, His ways are perfectly sound, and you just don't get them because you are human. That's okay. Uh, when we get to heaven, maybe we'll be able to ask God questions. Maybe he will be, he'll sit down with a really awesome cosmic Q&A, and, and we'll be able to go through all this stuff. I mean, hey, we got plenty of time on our hands in eternity, don't we? So, or non-time, depending on how you want to view that. But, but we, we've got plenty, and so we'll, we won't get bored of that. So maybe that'll happen. But what I want you to understand is that it's okay for us to disagree. It's okay for us to to hold different positions because we are not uh, infinite. We do not understand what God is doing. And that, truth be told, it's taken me 39 years to understand. And I I don't fully understand it, even now. Uh, I am a, I am a, I want the truth kind of person. And I am going to fight for that truth. And it is very important to me. However... I live with people and deal with people constantly that just don't see it my way. And I'm like, what? How is that possible? So anyway, it's just because I'm finite, and that, that's the truth of it. But the scripture in Romans and Romans 11, uh, 9 through 11 in particular has been cu- communicating unity. And unity has many forms, not just everybody agrees on things. Let me walk you through a couple of the pieces of unity that we discover throughout the book of Romans. Uh, Craig Keener, he's a, he's a fantastic uh, scholar and theologian. Uh, he's a bit dry, so if you want somebody that's 
exciting when they talk. Craig Keener is not your guy. You will fall asleep. But he is brilliant. And he puts it this way. He says, he says Romans 1 communicates that the world is damned. Romans 2 communicates that the Jews are damned. Romans 3 communicates we're all damned. Yippee! <laughs> Sounds like a great positive message, doesn't it? The, the way I see Romans 1 through 3 is very similar, and that is that Romans 1 communicates the whole world, not just Gentiles, but the whole world being condemned under sin. Romans 2, that God is an impartial God, and that is that Jew and Gentile alike have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 3 makes that clear statement, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I don't know if you know this, but that's a unity. We are unified in this. We're all sinners. Can you say that with me? We're all sinners. Some people, it takes a lifetime to actually admit that reality. Some go to their grave not believing that of themselves. We are all sinners. And so the whole of Romans 1, 2, and 3 is a unity. All of us are under sin. Romans 4, it's not about keeping the law, but faith, the pursuit by faith, which saves. The scripture tells us we are saved by grace through faith. We are not saved by grace and then we earn our keep or something like this. We are saved by grace through faith. The Jews and the Gentiles both are to pursue by faith. Romans 5 communicates that we're all of Adam's race. There's a unity there. There's a unity. First unity in Romans chapter 4 is that it's all faith. Faith is the governing unity. Uh, Romans chapter 5, the unity is that ethnicity doesn't save us. Ethnicity is not our ticket into the great by and by. The Jewish people don't have something that they can stand on. Is there a benefit in being a Jewish person? Romans 2, much in every way. Don't miss that. God loves those people, and he is faithful to the promises that he made to them uh, from ages past. He is not going to go back on his faithfulness. But I want you to understand that Paul communicates, a good Jewish man communicates, your ethnicity isn't what saves you. We're unified in that we're all of the race of Adam. We're unified in that we were once dead in sin, but as Christians, we are now to be dead to sin. This is another message that the church doesn't communicate today. We love to talk about the fact that we were once dead in sin and that we're saved by grace, but we were once dead to sin, saved by grace, so that now we might be dead to sin. We are not to participate in our former deeds of darkness. We are not to live inside of that previous way of life. Amen? This is what God has called us to. But that's a unity inside of the body of Christ. Here's what's amazing about those here that have claimed Jesus, that have put their trust in Jesus. The truth is you are dead to sin and you are to be dead in your sin. That is an amazing truth and an amazing unity that we all share. Romans chapter 7 talks about the old man versus the new man. How many of you know that we are new in Christ Jesus? We are a new creation. The old is slowly but surely sort of kind of passing away. No, that's not what the Bible says. We are new in Christ Jesus. The old has passed away. It's dead, church. Does that mean you're not tempted in this life? Of course not. Of course you're tempted in this life. But as I've said many times, you still have the ability to sin after uh, trusting in Christ Jesus and being born again. You just don't have the permission to. You have the ability, but you don't have the permission. 
This is the same as it was in old times. So Romans chapter 7, we're a new creation. Romans chapter 8, victory is in Christ Jesus alone. What's our unity? There's one way to salvation, amen? One way, his name is Jesus. Romans 9 through 11, I've shared this. We are uh, under the unity of God's showing mercy to all. What does Romans 11.32 say? It tells us that we are all shut up under sin so that God might show mercy to all church. So that's a unity that we have. A couple of the unities that we're going to see in the chapters ahead. Romans 12, differing gifts but one body. That's a unity, one body, amen? Number two, uh, verse, or chapter 13, we're to love one another. You know what happens when we actually love one another? Unity. That's amazing, isn't it? Uh, chapter 14, we're not to judge one another. The term judge here is to condemn. Why? Because we don't have the gavel. <laughs> God didn't give you the gavel, and I am thankful he didn't. I'm glad he didn't, and you should be glad he didn't give me the gavel. I've said this many times, on Tuesday I'd send everybody to hell and on Wednesday I'd regret it because I was wrong, okay? And so this, this happens to be what the problem is in us. But we're not to uh, judge one another. Uh, chapter 15, examples of reconciliation. Do you know what the point of reconciliation is? Unity, so that we will all come together. Romans 1 through 16 is all about unity. And in Rome, that was a problem. And then chapter 17, or chapter 16. Uh, there is no chapter 17 in Romans, just so you know. <laughs> chapter 16, a warning against division. Why do you warn against division? Because it breaks unity. It's all about unity when you read what the Apostle Paul writes to the Romans. Well, this morning, what I want you to see is that uh, love without hypocrisy, which is what verse 9 starts off with, love without hypocrisy is the catalyst for true biblical godly unity. Love without hypocrisy. How many of you have been to a wedding? You've, you've heard me teach on it. You've heard Romans, or you've heard 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. And on and on. We know this idea. Here's the trouble with 1 Corinthians 13. It is God's word. It is true. It is absolutely uh, perfect. Uh, Romans 13 serves to present the principles Romans chapter 12 starts to present the practical. 1 Corinthians 13 sets up the principle. Love is patient. Everybody here is going, I know I should be patient, but what about that guy I'm dealing with? What about when I go to work? Because 1 Corinthians 13 doesn't necessarily get into the practical. I heard that amen, Jerry. Uh, uh, it doesn't necessarily get into the practical. But Romans 12 is going to hit us between the eyes when it comes to the practical nature of it. So without further ado, our goal here is love without hypocrisy as the true catalyst for biblical unity. The Apostle Paul has just come off of this unifying message in 9 through 11, and he comes in and he says, I want you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I want you to know, and I want you to prove what the will of God is. And you do this by not being like the rest of the world, which is constantly divided against each other. They're constantly backbiting. They're constantly lording it over each other. But you guys, you're loving each other. How many of you'd love to see the church actually operate in that? We're loving each other. I mean, I mean real love. 
real, real love. That's what we want to see. And that is going to be the catalyst for genuine biblical unity. So here's what Paul says, verse 9. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. Now, it's important to notice right off the bat, let love be is not saying that, uh, that you, just need to, um, you just need to get out of the way. It's actually telling you an action to take, which is you need to, you need to do the actions of love that God has planted in your heart, that he has called you to. You need to let that be your governing, governing principle. You need to let that be the driving force inside of your life. This is hard. This is hard. Because many times, we don't want to let it be a driving force. We give ourselves reason after reason after reason why that person is just not worthy of love. Why? They're hard to handle. Why? They don't like the things I like. Why? They live a different lifestyle than me. We are called to love. We are called to love across the board. It's a powerful thing. The first half of this section, we're going to see how we're supposed to treat Christians. And the second half of it talks about what we're supposed to do inside of the world. But what we have here is love being without hypocrisy. What I need you to understand about love here, it's the word agape, uh, just like it is in 1 Corinthians 13. Agape is patient and kind. It's the same term. It's the same term that is used as in the noun form for God the Father when it says that God is agapao. God is love. It's the same idea, and we're supposed to communicate this. But love, that kind of love, is to be without hypocrisy. How many of you know what a hypocrite is? How many of you are one? Everyone so... Okay. Don't look around at this moment. Just hide your eyes. The hypocrite is the person who claims to be one way but puts a mask on uh, and uh, claims to be one way but lives a different way. Puts a mask on on Sunday morning, but when they go to work on Monday morning, all of a sudden they're a heathen. This is a hypocrite. This is why we're supposed to have love without hypocrisy because our example is a communication of the living God. Everything we do is a communication of his faithfulness, of his presence inside of the world, of his presence inside of our life. So we need to let our love, uh, let it be governed without hypocrisy. No masks, no playing games. I've shared this many times as well. Uh, We cannot live uh, holy on Sunday and live uh, like hell Monday through Saturday. We have got to be careful in how we are presenting our lives. Because why? Because we're back to that principle that says we are dead to sin and we uh, we are dead in sin, but now we are dead to sin. We're living for God's kingdom. So here's what, it, here's what 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says. And I'm going to be doing a lot of page turning today. So if you can keep up with me, that's great. If not, I'll put it out on the website so you'll have all of my uh, cross-references and all of those uh, verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 6. This is talking about uh, the people of God's ministry being commended, uh, specifically in Corinth, uh, also among the apostles. And he, he talks about that every one of them, every Christian, should commend themselves as servants to God in everything they do. Okay, And here's what follows. I'll start at verse 5, actually. It says, you are to commend yourself as a servant of God in beatings. Sign-up sheets in the lobby. 
in case you're okay with that. But that's what we're supposed to do. In beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. Now verse 6. In purity, in knowledge, in patience, in patience, in patience, in patience, in kindness in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and here is the phrase, it's the same wording, it's just translated in English, slightly different. He says, in genuine love. Love without hypocrisy is, Paul, Paul says it in Corinthians, as genuine love. How many of you know that the culture that we live in today has both mystified and mystified love? They have misdefined and they have mystified love. Love is either ooey-gooey and always a feeling, just to rest your minds at ease. Love is a decision, but there is a form of love that has to do with feelings. It's not just a feeling. In the Greek, the term, uh, which is not used in the scripture, but the Greek, the Greek word for this is eros, which is a... Um, which is an erotic or a love between a husband and a wife. And that is largely feeling-based. There, there are many feelings inside of that relationship. So don't, don't write off feelings, but I want you to understand that the way we've mystified love is love is just this kind of ethereal thing out in never-never land, and we can't, put, uh, you know, we can't put feet to it. Well, according to the Bible, love is patient. Love is kind. Love doesn't envy. Love doesn't boast. That's concrete. Okay? So, so love has either been mystified or it's been misdefined. And love just means whatever it is that the world wants love to be right now. And the criticism that you hear, especially in the culture when it comes to sexuality and sexual ethics, is this statement. You'll, you'll hear a criticism like this. You'll hear the people say, um, who are you to tell someone who they can and can't love? Now let me tell you what the Christian response is. The Christian response first is humility that says, well, actually, I'm nobody to tell you who you can and can't love. But I serve the God who defined love, and you can and can't do certain things. Smile. <laughs> this is what the Word of God says. And it's going to lead right into the second half of this verse because it really gets powerful when we look at love or genuine love or non-hypocritical love with feet on it. Here's what Paul goes on to say. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Say that with me, church. Abhor what is evil. Now look at the next line. Cling to what is good. Abhor what is evil. Uh, I, I, I can't say that I love the statement, um, but I understand the statement. Uh, people will say the greatest distance is between what? The head and the heart. Oh, isn't that so special? Anyway, the greatest distance is between the head and the heart. Can I tell you what the real greatest distance is? The greatest distance is in the modern recognition of sin and actually calling things sin. I have listened to pastors, I've listened to teachers, I've listened to Christians over and over when confronted with actual sin, that is spelled S-I-N, sin. When they are confronted with sin, they say, well, that's not God's best for us. Ladies and gentlemen, far greater distance from the head to the heart is the distance between that's not God's best for you and that's freaking sin. You don't like that all the time, but that is what it is. And what we have missed inside of the church today is that sin is the very thing Jesus came to die for. 
If it wasn't God's best, he could have been like, well, we'll just figure it out in the end. No, he doesn't die for not God's best. He dies for sin. And the church has a problem. And the problem is looking people square in the eye and saying sin is sin. The reason why we struggle with this is because we often don't want to look in the mirror and say that sin is sin. That person down the road, they're sinning. I'll never tell them that, but they're sinning. But when I look at myself in the mirror, I go, you know, I'm not quite living for God's best right now. This is dangerous, church. This is dangerous, church. Repentance requires us to look at our life and say, this is wrong and you, God, are right. We just don't like it. But I can assure you, that's the right thing. So, God doesn't say, just kind of sort of dislike or ignore what is evil and cling to what is good. He literally uses the word abhor. That is to hate what is evil. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 6 communicates the same principle when it tells us that we are to not celebrate in unrighteousness, but to rejoice in what, church? Truth. Don't celebrate unrighteousness, but rejoice in the truth. Now, I need you to, I need you to play the game with me. Who defines truth, church? God. And we know it through his word. God defines truth, not us. Listen, if we are the kind of people that decide to look at God's word and say, ah, that sets really funny with me. It's, it makes me uneasy. So I'm going to redefine it my own way. We are no different than the atheist who believes that all morality is subjective. We are no different. We're just simply picking apart what God says. Far be it from us to do it. It is not our job. Love without hypo- love, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Verse 10. Be devoted to one another. If you have a Bible, underline that to one another because he's talking about Christians. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Jesus talks about this in John's gospel. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, starting at verse 34. A new commandment I give you. What was that again, church? A new suggestion. Yeah, suggestion. That's, that's what it is. Okay. A new commandment I give to you, uh, that you uh, give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you. Can, can you guys call out, just, just randomly, call out the levels Jesus went to to communicate his love for us? Death? What else? Say again. Washing feet. More. What else? Say it again. Louder. He was spit on for our sake. Yes. He took, uh, he took judgment. He took persecution for us. Okay. And he tells us here that you're to love one another even as I have loved you. 
The greatest distance, head to heart. The greatest distance, not God's best, uh, calling it sin. Another great distance is loving people, but then loving people the way Jesus loved us. We, we, we're, we're so good at excuses, church. We're so good at saying, well, I told them I love them. Did you act it out? Did you live it out? Did you stand in the gap for them? Have you ever found yourself in the position uh, between the judgmental world and the, and the broken sinner, and you stand in the gap and say, you're a sinner and she's a sinner. Whoa, hold on. Don't throw your stones unless you're without sin. Have you ever stood in the gap that way? That's what we're called to do. Yet we're all supposed to, also supposed to love people like Jesus did and say to even that person, go and sin no more. That's love, church. But we don't love like Jesus loved. We love like we want to love until it's inconvenient and then we're out. This is, this is exemplified in the problem with marriage in the modern day church. It's a, it's a, a mess in the modern day church. It's a mess in the world today. And it's because till death do us part simply means till it really gets annoying. Till you've pushed me beyond my limit. Till till you've done something that I just flat out can't come to grips with. We don't really mean till death do us part. Because we don't really mean we love you. What a dangerous place that we find ourselves in. So Jesus says in verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Peter says in his epistle, he says that that people will ask you of the hope that you have. But the reason people are not asking the church of the hope they have is because when they look through the windows of the church, when they set foot into the, the, the building of the church, they don't see people that will fight for each other no matter the cost. They don't see genuine love. Now, it is also true that, the church, that people look on the church and they say, that's not real love. That requires teaching. That requires growing them. That requires explaining to them and, and, and getting them to understand love cannot be defined by anybody's opinion. Love is what God has said. But the church, the church looks no different in many ways than the rest of the world. The church doesn't look any different. Even when Jesus was walking around with his disciples, the church didn't quite look different. The the idea, though, the idea here is this. Jesus is walking around with his disciples, and uh, Mark 10 tells of the story. It says that uh, James and John came up to him. Um, Actually, when you read all of the Gospels, you understand that James and John sicked their mom on Jesus, which is a terribly non-manly thing to do. Anyway, so so they they sick their mom on Jesus, and they want to know uh, if Jesus will allow them to sit on the right and on the left of Jesus. Will you put us in places of honor, places of authority? And Jesus, of course, asks the question. He says, okay, let's entertain this thought. He says, "Can uh, can you be baptized in the baptism I'm about to go through? Can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? drink and you know what they respond with the same arrogant nonsense we do they're like sure we got this right it's a cross what are you talking about it's the wrath of God sure we got it and he goes he goes okay sure enough you're you're gonna do it you're gonna go to a cross you're gonna go to persecution and death for my name's sake but they they want to do this he says can you do it they say yes they can he says sure you will and then he says this he says but here's the deal that's for my father to give 
But your problem right now is that you're thinking like your former self. You're thinking like the Gentiles do, and that is you're wanting to lord it over one another. The church sees the same selfish ambition in the church as they see in the rest of the world. And you know what happens when they see that? They don't ask us for any hope because they don't see any hope. That's a sad situation. What does this get to? It gets back to us being a loving people without hypocrisy. Love without hypocrisy. This is the catalyst for true biblical unity. So let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. John 3, uh, 13, 34 communicates this clearly. And then he goes and says this. Give preference to one another in honor. Give preference to one another in honor. The literal translation here is astounding. The literal translation of give preference means or is translated outdo one another when it comes to honor. Outdo one another when it comes to honor. Again, head to heart, not God's best to sin. All of these things are great distances apart. Now we have this. You're supposed to honor people. You're supposed to honor people. Oh, oh, no, no, no. You're supposed to outdo them when it comes to honor. Are you able to do this? Are you ready for this? Uh, it is my estimation in the church today, it's my uh, view of the church today, that we struggle when it comes to church discipline. Okay? We struggle when it comes to church discipline, if it is even present in the church at all. And largely, it is not in the church. My first observation for why it's not in the church is this. Because, uh, because people don't actually want, they don't actually want to call others out. They don't, they view that as judgmental. It's not judgmental, church. Do you get me? Are you tracking with me? It is not judgmental for a brother in Christ to look at another brother or a sister or vice versa for you to go to them and say, whoa, 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 where is that in the Bible? Why are you doing that? Didn't Jesus say expressly not to do that? Why are we doing this? The reason why church discipline is not in the church today is because we hate conflict. We avoid it at all cost, listen to me church, to the demise of people. We're so concerned with people liking us that we would rather them go to hell. Take a second. And listen, that's not just the verdict of a Christian pastor. That's the verdict of Penn Jillette. A famous, known atheist that says if you know there is a hell, you believe with deep conviction that there is a punishment for wrongdoing and you don't tell people about it. You are the most hateful person in the world. Gulp. It's a staggering truth. The reason why church discipline is not in the church today is because we hate conflict. We avoid it at all cost. The second reason why church church discipline is not in the church is because it's been abused in the past. Women, you wore pants. That's it. You're out. I'm not sure where we got that from. As Sarah pointed out to me this morning, everybody in ancient times wore skirts. What's the deal with that? 
So, so okay, we got to get past this. Everybody's wearing a tunic of some kind. What's the deal? That's what it was. Slacks were manly. No, 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 no. But we've abused these kinds of things, and we've overreacted. I have been on the, on the bad end of that. You have been on the bad end of that. Uh, scripture talks about a process to church discipline. Guess what the first step in church discipline is? Go to somebody one-on-one. You know how many times we do that? Well, like none. <laughs> Negative if possible. We, we don't do church discipline well. Or next step of church discipline, we go with another brother or sister. And what we do there is we just find somebody that agrees with us and we tag team on them. And we beat them up. That's not church discipline. That's not actually what's, what's supposed to happen. And then the third model is that we bring it before the church. But in today's culture, we bring it before the church every time we lambast somebody on Facebook or on social media. We're like, sinner, give them a scarlet letter. This is the sad state of church discipline in the church today. What we need is church discipline. What we need is proper church discipline. So, so I know that I just said that, but I, I need to actually violate my own rule uh, right now. Uh, Nathan Daniels has never watched the Lord of the Rings series in his entire life. Did you know, did, did you know, that, such, did you know that such people exist? Okay, so step one, step two, forget those. Before the church, you're on the last leg, bud. Anyway, <laughs> yes. And then he confesses he likes Austin Powers. Can you weep with those who weep? I am, I am broken right now. Anyway, so step three of church discipline. Now, here's what I want to get to when it comes to church, to church discipline. Uh, being devoted to one another in brotherly love. Giving preference to one another in honor. How many of you have ever heard of the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Uh, you know that we made that word up, right? That term up. It, Jesus didn't say, here's the golden rule. <laughs> um, so it was, it was, it, we call it the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. A lot of pastors today actually have done well in their titling of a passage from Philippians chapter 2. You can turn there. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3. Instead of it being the golden rule, they refer to this as the platinum rule. And I love this. And I wish that the church would adopt this uh, in its in its full understanding. Here's what Philippians 2 uh, verse 3 says. It says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And by nothing there, God means nothing. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as, I want you to say this after me, more important than yourselves. Say it. More important than yourselves. One more time. More important than yourselves. One last time. More important than yourselves. The golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And the platinum rule says, think of them as more important than you. It is like herding cats to get people to love their neighbor the way they want to be loved because we justify the problems in others while we while or we justify the problems in ourselves while we condemn the problems in others we do this constantly we're supposed to love them the way we would want to be loved treat them the way we want to be treated and then paul comes along in philippians and says as a matter of fact do better honor them as more important than yourself greatest distance from the head to the heart not God's best to sin. This is one of those great 
great distances. You should treat people with more honor than yourself. Give preference to one another in honor. Now let me explain something about church discipline that needs to be employed with this passage in mind. When you see somebody walking in sin, if you're going to honor your brother or sister as more important than yourself, you are going to go to them one-on-one. And you're going to say, you know what? I see what has happened here, but I know you, and I know your character, and something doesn't make sense. And when you lead this way in a way of humility, not with accusation or with finger pointing, but when you go and you lead in this way and you say, I know you, I love you, I know what you profess, the problem is something's inconsistent with what's going on here. And I'm wondering what's happening. And actually just here to check. I just, I just want to know what's going on. This is what it means to have honor and, and, and more honor for your neighbor than yourself or your brother than yourself. And I believe that if we would go into discipline in this way, I believe that if husbands treated their wives this way, if wives treated their husbands this way, if, if we treated our children this way, if we honored them above all things and we looked at them and said, I need to know what's going on here, I believe we would have far less conflict and far less need for level three of church discipline because we would probably find out they just had a bad day something was just off and they were they were they screwed up and they apologize they repent for it they go I sinned I did I I messed this one up I missed the mark of God I sinned and I'm glad that you thought well enough of me to not point the finger at me but to ask me what was going on we could avoid painful church discipline when it's present in the church, we could avoid it if we honored our neighbor as more important than ourselves. And then if we go to them with another person, step two of church discipline, we would never go so with, uh, with you know, a, a judge and a jury in tow. We would never walk into their presence by saying, what you answer here is going to determine the rest of your life in our church. We wouldn't do that because we would honor them enough to say, hey, I I brought a brother, I brought a sister with me, and not so that we could tag team. Not Not that we could just impose our opinion on you, but so that we could get to the bottom of this because I came to you one on one and I don't feel you heard me and I just want to talk it out. If it was with humility and if it was honoring another as more important than yourself, I'm telling you what, we're going to steer that ship towards confession quick. We're going to steer that ship towards restoration quick. We're going to steer that ship towards everyone living in godly unity really quick. How have we missed this? We've missed this by the fracturing of the American church. And it went beyond America, but by the fracturing of the church in the denominational problems that we have. 30 and 40,000 fractures and splits of denominations, all because what? All because, number one, we forgot we're finite beings who don't understand everything, even though we're too proud to admit it. And number two, we just went guns a-blazing into others' lives, and we just told them, that's it, you got to leave. You have no part with me. How good and pleasing it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is not good nor pleasing for brothers to constantly fighting and hating one another. 
So he goes on, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Literally, outdo one another with respect to honor. Remember the context. Jewish believers and Gentile believers coming together and realizing God has made a space for all of them in Jesus Christ. And he says, I want Gentile, you to honor the Jew because there's much benefit in who they are. But Jew, I want you to honor the Gentile because they have been brought in as your brothers and sisters. Honor them, honor them, honor them. So he goes on, verse 11, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Listen, your diligence in this manner cannot be, I'll get to it tomorrow. It cannot be, I'll get to it tomorrow. Love your brothers and sisters now, while there is a day called today, because that love sends out a a beacon of truth to the rest of the world that we have a hope that they do not have. Do not lack in your diligence, but be fervent in your spirit, serving the Lord. Verse 12, rejoice in hope, persevere in tribulation. How many of you know what Romans 5, 2 says when it says that uh, we do not, no one hopes for that which they have. They hope for that which they do not have. You don't hope for something you already have, that you have it. It's done. You hope for what you do not have. Read that line again. It, he wants us to rejoice in hope. Rejoice in the promises set before us in the things that are yet to come. Guys, I've talked to you a lot about our, our worship culture. So we, we need a worship culture that communicates the story of God because when we communicate the story of God, people know how to praise him. They know how to worship him. But here's another thing that we need in the worship culture. We need a ravishing picture of what eternity looks like. Life with our Father. God dwelling among his people. A new heaven and a new earth. A new Jerusalem coming down where we are constantly doing what we were supposed to be doing in Eden. Where we live and and work and play for the glory of the King of Kings. We need songs that paint that picture. Why do we need songs that paint that picture? Because we're supposed to rejoice in hope. Why don't we rejoice well in church today? We actually don't have hope. How many of you are looking forward to this week at work? That's what I thought. You must have a great job. I love it. You do have a great job. But here's the, here's the point. If you're, if, you're looking for, if you're not looking forward to the present, the, the here and the now, you're normal. It's amazing. But if you hope in that which is yet to come, you have hope. What are you supposed to do in the here and the now? This is the last piece for today. He says, I want you to persevere in tribulation. How many of you feel like this work week is just going to be an art form of persevering? Come on. Okay, some enjoy it and nobody else is saying this. You're all lying. So, so we're going to be persevering through this tribulation. That's actually what we're supposed to do in this life. Hold fast, stand firm, endure to the end, persevere in all of these things. So here's, here's what all of this says, and we'll get to more of it next week. Here's what all of this says. It says that as Christians, that we are to be a people whose love is void of hypocrisy. Some of the practical, real-world steps of a love without hypocrisy is for us to hate evil and love good. If you're a Christian who does not hate what God calls evil as evil, your love is hypocritical. 
We're to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. But if you just can't stand the church and God's people, we have a problem. Because your love is hypocritical. You're supposed to give preference to one another. You're to outdo one another with regard to honor. Otherwise, your love is hypocritical. You're to not lag behind in diligence. Don't wait for tomorrow. Do it now. Be fervent in the Spirit and do all that you do knowing it is serving the Lord. And last but not least, rejoice in hope and persevere in trial. When you get those connections, what you're doing... This is beautiful. What you're doing is you're living a non-hypocritical form of love, and the world sees it. The world sees it. So, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us some great principles. Romans 12 tells us these practical hands and feet of this that really cause us, if we're not careful, to swallow hard because we're not quite those people. But let's strive for this because that's what God has set before us. Amen? It's love without hypocrisy. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.